Think back with me about 80 years on the calendar, if you would. We're going all the way back to 1939. How many of you remember 1939? If you remember 1939, got a few hands out there. I was negative 60 or something. Um, Germany's invasion of Poland on September 1st, 1939, marked the beginning of the second time the world went to war. One day and several years later, September 2nd, 1945, marked U.S. Army General Douglas MacArthur's acceptance of Japan's unconditional surrender. World War II was over. It was peacetime. 1939 and 1945, these are numbers which are significant to us as Americans, as grandchildren, as sons and daughters, as veterans, as families of veterans. And here's some other numbers which have significance as they pertain to this war. I think they're interesting. First, the number three. Three is the number of nations which led the Axis powers at the start of World War II, Germany, Italy, and Japan. Four is the number of nations which led the Allied powers, Great Britain, the United States, the USSR or Soviet Union, and China. Two is the number of atomic bombs dropped on Japan in August of 1945. Four is the number of flags on the USS Missouri, one for each of the Allied powers when the surrender papers were signed. Fifty is the depth of feet of the underground bunker in which Adolf Hitler committed suicide under Berlin on April 30th. 255 allied ships in the Tokyo Bay for the surrender ceremony. Some of these I thought were interesting. Here's a real interesting one. 18 was the number of minutes it took for representatives of Japan, the United States, China, Great Britain, the USSR, and so forth to each sign two copies of the instrument of surrender from 9.04 a.m. to 9.22 a.m. 16 million is the number of Americans who served during World War II. 73,661 is the approximate number of Americans classified as missing in action during World War II. And finally, the last number, there's more. But at least 6 million, the number of people killed in Nazi concentration camps. You know, when we look at the cost of freedom, it's certainly a relief to be able to acknowledge these two words. It's peacetime. It's peacetime. And we like to hear about world peace, but as Christians, we're promised a different reality, aren't we? We're promised an inward kind of peace, no matter what battles are being fought around us. And in our text this morning, Paul talks about a peace that is meant to touch every corner of our conflicted lives from here to eternity. If you would, open your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. We're going to read this text together in full today. As we read this text, please remember, keep in mind that someone has died. Someone has died for us, each one of us. And this number two is significant. When we look at the cost of freedom, may we remember that it's peacetime. It's peacetime. Praise God. Praise God. But Paul writes this, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have what? 
Peace. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Verse 3, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Verse 10. For if, we were, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, Shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. That's the end of our text. Right away, Paul acknowledged. We said it once. What do we have with God? Peace. Peace with God. And what kind of peace do we have with God? Could it be perhaps a peace that invites us to think of surrender? Surrender like Japan surrendered on September 2nd, 1945. Sure. Do you see that word in verse 10? It's six words into the text. Enemies. Enemies. Paul says these are the very people with whom Paul says God now has peace. His enemies. Who is that? One preacher notes that there are three groups of people included here in verses 6 to 10 within the category of God's enemies or former enemies as the case may be. That includes the weak and helpless, the ungodly, the sinners, and that's all of us. That's all of us. We're weak and helpless because we couldn't save ourselves in a time of spiritual conflict without some kind of help from heaven. We're ungodly because we turn from God to idols and the lusts of the world. It's what we've done. It's what we're pretty good at doing. And we're sinners because we choose to be weak and helpless. We choose to be ungodly when God has done everything in His power to make us and redeem us in His image while we're busy fighting him, while we're busy fighting the ones he loves. It's amazing that out of all God's creations, whom did he love? You know, he didn't just put his breath within us. He made us in his image. He gave us freedom of choice. How did we thank him? My friend Henry says it this way. In the Garden of Eden, we chose to run from God, and we've been running from God ever since. Not too wise to make oneself an enemy of the very being who gives you life and breath, is it? C.S. Lewis said it's like cutting off the branch you happen to be sitting on. But we did. 
And though we chose to become enemies of God in the garden, get this, God already had the wheels in motion, third chapter of Genesis, to restore peace, peace to his creation. You think of, to pardon the expression, the bomb he could have dropped on Adam. God could have been done with us. He could have been done with humanity right from the start. It would have saved us ages of idolatry, of greed. We have problems like child trafficking, substance abuse, money changers in the temple on TV. God could have spared all of this. Someone pointed out in Sunday school this morning from creation, God knew. God knew what was ahead and he made us anyway. How did God treat his enemies? Verse 10 he gave us his life. He gave us Jesus. Do you realize God has spent thousands upon thousands of years loving those people who turned their back on him? Now think for a minute. Think about the people you normally, we normally, I normally choose to love. God's people. We're so funny, aren't we? We're so flippant. We're so flaky. An actor might turn up in half a dozen movies. He makes us smile. He makes us laugh. We say, oh, I love that guy. You can name one. I don't care. Uh, Tom Hanks is starring as Mr. Fred Rogers. Now, there's a combination. Even the most cynical moviegoer can't help but appreciate. Who wants to see Tom Hanks as, as Fred Rogers? Oh, man, that sounds like a great time. It's easy to love someone who makes you laugh. It's even sort of easy to love someone who doesn't make you laugh but tries really hard on a Sunday morning, right? <laughs> what about somebody who pins his crimes on your son, spits in their face, tears their flesh off their body, and hangs them on a cross? Maybe not so easy. I've not tried it, but I bet I'd struggle with it. Paul says in verse 8, there's a cost to love like there's a cost to freedom. How do I make peace with someone who's made my life a living, well, you know where. I struggle with this. Maybe someone doesn't measure up to my standards. God shows his love for us how. He loves them to death. Marriage is an illustration of this, or marriage is supposed to be an illustration of this. It doesn't always work that way in this broken world. On the subject of divorce, Chip Ingram says that person that you met at the altar on that day that you were married, they became the right person for you. They became the one. But we give up on each other so easily today. How do we show our love for one another? There's conditions usually. There's conditions. But not the way of the Father. Not divine love. Not the way that encourages peace. This is how. One counselor writes, this is our love. I, I'll love you if you do what I want you to do. I love you because you're so handsome slash beautiful, rich, generous, strong. Some of you ladies just got a little googly-eyed thinking of your husbands when I said that last part. That's okay. Long was your own husband and not your neighbors. But this counselor continues, I'll love you until you lose your attractiveness or someone else comes along or your philosophy changes on some things or you don't give in to me. He concludes, these types of loves, this is fragile, faithless, fickle, and failing. Because when the criterion for being loved goes away, so does the love. 
Verse 8, Christ died for us. See, the purpose of divine love, restoration, peace. Divine love means God goes out of his way to have peace with the very people who went against him. So here's the thought for us Christ followers. How much of your time, how much of my time, how much do we spend trying to make peace with the very people who make our existence just a little bit difficult? And there's another question maybe we should ask of our text. How exactly are we to experience life at peacetime in this world when we, as Christians, when we can't even be at peace with one another? How? How are we supposed to do this? Look back with me at verse 2. Look back. I think the key's here. Verse 2 says this, Through Him we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We need to break this down a little bit more. You see, it's, it's no small truth that, that no matter what we're up against in this world, Christians have direct access, direct access to the Prince of Peace at all times, don't we? Now, we might read this scripture today and miss, miss the significance, miss what Paul's saying here. Having direct access to God. We, we talked about this in Wednesday small group actually this week. This is a big deal. Remember, the Jews of the Old Testament, they were separated. Separated from God by a veil hanging in the temple. Separated. Instead, there was a Jewish high priest that acted on their behalf. Everyone who wasn't Jewish was separated by a wall within the temple. If a Gentile, a non-Jew, violated Jewish law by trying to cross the wall, it meant punishment by death. And these were the terms that the Church of Rome would have remembered. That would have been fresh in their mind because that's the way it had been for thousands of years. This idea of having direct access to God, this is revolutionary. This is revolutionary for us. Fifty years ago, John Lennon sang, You say you want a revolution. An entire counterculture thought they could change the world with peace and love and chemicals. <laughs> Meanwhile, Jesus Christ, when the temple was torn and his crucifixion, Jesus Christ brought the real revolution. A long-haired Jesus movement of the 1970s, encouraged by Billy Graham and others, this came along in part because of disaffected ex-hippies that couldn't get high enough to see God. It's true. But they found direct access to God through His Son, and this was all they needed. Talk about making a hippie float. I tried to redeem it. But believers in Jesus have the indwelling, indwelling Holy Spirit, the glory of God. The glory of God, this means we know peace. We know peace. In verse 1 here, uh, Romans 4, it actually, uh, it automatically renders the language. We have peace. Some manuscripts of Scripture turn this into action. Let us have peace. See, there's no reason for us to act as though God is distant or in the shadows somewhere out there. We don't know where away from us, for that veil has been torn. We have the real revolution. The real revolution. 
the real movement of peace. You know, it's unfortunate to note that today there are still over a billion people that go to a priest believing that priest is acting as some kind of forgiving intercessor between us and God. God's Word says the Holy Spirit is with you if you're a Christian. There's peace time for you. There's no longer any hostility, anything keeping you from God because of what you've done. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 18 and 19, Paul adds, For through Him, through Jesus, we both have access in one spirit to the other. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Forgiven. We're family at peace. Some of us may not know a family at peacetime. God's Word says that's the reality. Think of how simple this realization of being God's people at peace should make the daily grind in the devil's world. See, we can face life, the sufferings and the hurts and the opposition. We can look ourselves in the mirror every day because we stand in and on the grace of God, verse 2. Peacetime. This can be the reality for the Christian life if we let it. And here's the key. If we let it. Verse 2 says, we rejoice. We rejoice. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. How's your rejoicing in the Lord going today? How's it going? That's the question. That's the question Paul has for us at peacetime. See, it's amazing. It's amazing. I'm guilty of this. It's amazing how a negative attitude can have an effect not just on one person's peace, but on those surrounding them. My wife often points this out to me uh, during family time. You know, for example, I'm just going to give away some you know, gory details here. I might as well. We're all family. If, for example, I'm asked to run out to the store, maybe for a few things, wife needs that evening for dinner, maybe the next day for get-together, my daughter's down here sitting, I'm just glad he's not embarrassing me. He can embarrass himself all he wants. If I'm asked for this, if I decide to get all, you know, I'll put it this way, grumpy, you know, maybe it's been a long day of work, putting this nicely from the pulpit, grumpiness doesn't just stay in my corner. Doesn't just stay in my seat. For some reason, the grumpy gets passed on. I get grumpy with the wife, and she can get grumpy then with the oldest child. The oldest child gets grumpy with the middle child right down to the youngest child starts taking it out on everyone. I don't know how it works out in every family, but I know that in the root family, if the baby ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. (laughs) I may not feel like it, but the best way I've found to have an enjoyable time with the family is to be peaceable. Even if I maybe get asked to do some running and I just don't feel like doing it at the moment, be peaceable. I mean, I can turn quietly to myself, grumble in my mind, say, Josh, the, the book of Ephesians says to love your wife like Jesus loves the church. Let's just get in the car. I can. <laughs> That's okay. But the, the trickle down or the trickle around effect of negativity, which threatens the peace, doesn't just exist in my house, in the family unit, does it? A poor attitude can have a negative effect throughout other kinds of groups. 
Think about your favorite sports team. Delise Coffe, a, a psychologist and game coach who writes for Sports Psychology for Basketball, says this, the right attitude for a team can drive a mediocre player to great success, but a very talented player can find themselves on the bench if a poor mental attitude exists. She observes, there are countless athletes possessing tremendous mental toughness and physical ability, but who fail to reach their potential simply because of their attitude. She goes on to give this illustration from the court, basketball court. In April 2012, Lakers versus Golden State Warriors. Andrew Bynum took a three-pointer which enraged his coach and resulted in him barely seeing the court again for the rest of the game. Bynum toward, uh, told the media uh, that were following the Laker vi victory that he, he didn't truly understand why he was benched, said he was going to launch more three-pointers in the future. That's something that I thought could have taken us out of rhythm, so I took him out of the game, Coach Brown said, after observing Senator Bynum's poor three-point shot earlier on. And you see, B Bynum also appeared amused on the bench as he mimicked the form on his release. Mocking the coach. Delise continues, defiance of the coach and what he wants a player to do in a situation, this is a display of poor attitude. Poor attitude on the court. A player determining to do it his way regardless, display a poor attitude. One thing is clear, attitude and the way you channel it is extremely important in not only your own success as an athlete, but also in the success of your team in the success of your team as a whole. So let's bring attitude back to the church building this morning, shall we? It's peacetime. It's peacetime. Paul promises this. I know circumstances in our lives may not feel like it. I know news headlines and, and Facebook may not report it. And I know the church at large for the last couple thousand years may not have represented it. But God's word says we, the church, have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Folks, this is a time this morning to rejoice. To rejoice. Are you? Can we see it? When you come in this place, are you so full of joy that it rubs off on other people for the whole team that's gathered this morning? Did you come into this house of worship with the name of the Lord on your lips? Or are you just going through the motions of praise and worship, just showing up? Were you striving to come in and perpetuate peace with your fellow brothers and sisters? Or, or were you too busy bothered by somebody that you wrote in on? Perhaps with, if you wrote in on them, yeah, I can see why they weren't too happy. <laughs> Try that again. That you rode in with. Too busy bothered by uh, somebody on the phone. Too busy bothered by somebody uh, next to you. Uh, or uh, that you didn't know the way this song went. Or that you didn't like the way that song was presented. Or you couldn't hear so-and-so again from where you're sitting. Or worship just wasn't the way you liked it. And therefore you just couldn't get into it. To quote Francis Chan, that's okay. We weren't worshiping you. We laugh, but we have a choice, don't we? 
Each one of us, we have a choice with our attitude. We have a choice to embrace peacetime. We have a choice with our friendliness and our demeanor each and every Lord's Day. We come into his house when we're present with other people. What attitudes do you enjoy receiving, catching from others? Be that person. Think of those people that you love to be around. Be those people. And not just for two hours on a Sunday morning, but during each fellowship dinner, each small group study, each women's group hour, each meeting. When we're with our families, when we're enjoying the blessings of peacetime, enjoying what we have in God, in these environments, how do we, how do we show up? How do we arrive? What's our attitude? Do we come in peace, come in joy, or do we come to find fault and stir up tension? One preacher says, you determine how much of God's spiritual resources you receive from God. How big a vessel did you bring today? Did you bring a tiny tin cup or a big bucket? What did you come expecting today? He continues, you have access. You have access to God. He promises you hope of his glory. Why do we then cling to sinful behavior? Act like we don't care about the team. Cling to bad attitudes. We have a constant supply of resources as Christians justified by faith at peacetime. No, but life hurts, doesn't it? I know life hurts. It's a struggle, and I agree. Each and every day feels like just another 24-hour opportunity for suffering for some of us. And friends, I wish I could tell you differently but I can't. The truth remains, we're all going to have to make the decision to either rejoice in it or feel sorry for ourselves and our sufferings. That's just the way it is. No one after Adam and Eve is exempt from the ramifications of the garden. Verse 3. This is whether we accept the biblical worldview on suffering or not. Whether we believe it or not. We can either choose peace in Jesus or conflict of the world. One time president of the American Humanist Association and proud atheist, although a brilliant writer and satirist, famously quoted one of his own books for his epitaph, the late Kurt Vonnegut Jr., whose tombstone slyly reads, everything was beautiful and nothing hurt. Everything was beautiful and nothing hurt. The statement might make us chuckle. It's, ir it's irony, right? Life hurts so much. But unfortunately, this thought also makes you cry. For regardless of how one responds to the absurdities, of which there are plenty, and hardships and struggles of life, of which there are possibly many more, we still will all have to deal with this problem of death. It still looms. But no one else except Jesus has conquered death, have they? Has provided a solution to the problem. No one else but Jesus Christ has returned, perfected in body and promising, hey, with me, you can do this too. No one else but Jesus has taken a look at the difficult world with its broken relationships and difficult business dealings and crooked government leaders and said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
John 14, 6. And then in John 16, 33, has continued to say, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have what? Peace. In the world you will have tribulation. Jesus tells us that trouble is guaranteed. Not everything's going to be beautiful and things are going to hurt. But then Jesus promises one more thing. But take heart, I've overcome the world. So we get a choice in the midst. We can either choose to respond to life. That's life. The old song goes. We can either respond to life like a cynic with a shrug of the shoulders, or we can say today and every day until Jesus returns, everything can be beautiful. Why? Everything can be beautiful because Jesus has made me promises despite the hurt, and he's going to keep them. We can let it be peacetime, each one of us, amen? Last week we talked about experience, how some experiences in life Maybe they seem like a waste of time while we're going through them, right? You know, when we're, when we're young and, and maybe a, a little immature, if anything on the schedule for our day feels like a detour from what we'd rather be doing with that hour or afternoon, um, sometimes maybe we think we're being hassled. Some of us never grow out of that either. I, that's, I struggle with that. I used to struggle with that badly as a child. I remember sitting in the car as a, as a young person, uh, maybe to go visit friends or relatives of, of mom or dad. I remember sitting there in the car in the back seat during that commute, and it felt like hours, hours, small eternity. And this was before, this is days before you could pull up the entire Walt Disney catalog on your phone, right? Watch it anywhere. Remember those days? But I remember as a kid sitting in the car, waiting, looking out windows and counting stop signs, thinking I'd wasted all this time of my day just to go visit somebody and sit in the corner uh, thirsty, listening to them talk about their Pomeranians. Today, I'd love it. Sounds like, sounds like a typical week on the job now. <laughs> looking back, though, was that suffering? Looking back, were those just at the time, feeling like minor inconveniences for an immature child that just wanted to have his own space, his own time that day. But what about the sufferings we consider today not making light of serious situations in our lives? But we don't know how God may be using whatever we think is bothering us today to shape us for eternity, to shape us for later on. Romans 8.28, to shape us like the one we're following. Eternity's a long time. Paul says these present sufferings, verse 3, producing endurance like Jesus. Verse 4, this endurance we're building, giving us character like Jesus. Character with hope like Jesus, who cannot be put to shame because he was filled with hope. Not just, not just when he was tortured, mutilated, and put to death at Calvary. Little inconvenience. Does it compare to ours? But when Jesus was looking death right in the eye and he still wasn't put to shame, he wasn't put to shame. It was to the glory of God. When we look back in Jesus, we're going to remember some things, some hurts, some hang-ups, some inconveniences in life, things and everything that might have even hurt. But everything, I believe, will say was also made beautiful. Was also made beautiful. Because of Christ's death, the life of the Christian equals peace. 
I don't know what you may be suffering this morning, but I do know this. Your suffering is a tool to make you more like Jesus. Verse 5. I'm not saying God causes it. I'm saying God allows it. Please don't consider it an inconvenience. Please don't consider it proof of a non-existent or hateful or uncaring God. Please don't look at it as a disturbance of your inward peace for very long. You're at peace with God, my friend. The scriptures promise that, and you're sitting in that proverbial car ride drawing strength for your struggle from Jesus Christ. There's preachers in some pulpits, in some churches that will tell you differently. I realize that. I overheard a conversation a week or two back about a church not too far from us. And oh, how uh, this church is packing them in the doors. Oh, what, what mirror miraculous signs are being shown in that place. Oh, what miracles God is working live and on stage before the congregation. And I'm trying not to be too cynical about the situation, but from what I hear, it's nothing but good stuff. Nothing but good stuff ever happens with these people. And so I'm a little concerned about what they're teaching because if Christians would spend more time roaming through the book of Romans, they'd know better than to accept this unrealistic, theatrical, feel-good, angels tuck you in at night Christianity. With enough faith, some preachers say, you'll never have a problem in the world. Then there's James chapter 1, verses 2 to 4 that says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. James, the brother of Jesus, says, making you like Jesus. James also says, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Christian peace, friends, it's meant for the long haul. But it's not a destination in this life. It's a way of surviving. It's a way of making life bearable throughout the various bumps and ruts and valleys, detours and road missing entirely signs. You know, living near McBride and Cannonsville Road, we Vestbergians know all too well. One can travel with our eyes on the destination while bouncing off the bumps beneath. They'll fix the road. It's never the part we live on. You ever notice that? James also says, chapter 1, verse 12, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. You notice the order. When he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Do you have peace in what God has promised for the ride home, for the whole way, for the passage? I wonder if the Spirit, this is just conjecture on my part, because I know Paul hoped he, that he'd get to see these people when he wrote this letter from Corinth. But I wonder if the Spirit maybe let him in on uh, the idea that, you know, he wasn't actually going to get to Rome to visit uh, until he was carried around there as a prisoner. I, I wonder. I, I, I don't know. Um, but I wonder something else. How much time do you think Paul spent with the God of peace and prayer? How much time? The church can treat prayer like we still have to go to the temple on one day of the year to a certain individual at a certain time of day with the cleanest clothes we have on our backs. We have peace to hang on because God is right here. 
Steve Camp, Christian singer, once wrote, I do not fear what men can do, for where I go, my God goes to. Wherever we fight a battle, he is with us, promising peace. Here's a story maybe you've heard. Uh, if not, I'm going to uh, close with this this morning. There's a man by the name of Horatio Spafford. Anyone familiar with the name or his story? He was a wealthy businessman from Chicago, lived during the late 1800s. Spafford lost most of his fortune during the great Chicago fire of 1871. With the city in ruin, Horatio sent his wife and four daughters ahead to Europe while the city recovered. He had intended to join his family later on. Unfortunately, the ship that the Spafford ladies were traveling was hit by another ship. And on November 2nd, 1873, the ship sank to the bottom of the Atlantic, killing 226 people, including all of Spafford's daughters. Telecommunications, of course, being less developed at this time, a simple cable was able to be sent by Spafford's wife from Wales. It read two words, saved alone. Upon receiving this news, Horatio left Chicago immediately to join his wife in England. When the ship he was sailing passed through the site where his daughter sank, he was inspired to write a few words. They should sound very familiar and ring true to you today. Horatio wrote, When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. In the very face of tragedy, in the very place of tragedy, Horatio Spafford wrote the same song we sang earlier about finding peace in God. Spafford, a church elder and close friend to evangelist Dwight Moody, he was no stranger to mourning. At, at uh, four years of age, his son had died of scarlet fever. My family has certainly been no strangers to uh, struggle similar to this. Maybe your family has too. Maybe you know someone has a similar story. There's certainly no monopoly on grief in this world, is there? Although we'd love in the church to be able to claim world peace, we can't. Sorrows like sea billows are promised for us. Like the cross was promised for Jesus Christ. But we can still rejoice. We can still rejoice. Suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. We have the God of peace who one day will make all things well, will dry all our tears. That's a promise from the God of peace. Is it peacetime with your soul, brothers and sisters? Let's pray. Lord, I pray. I pray for each one of us present here today in this place. I pray for each one that uh, is, is hearing this message. 
I pray, Lord, that you would comfort and encourage us. Lord, we all know grief at different times of our life. We all know struggle. We all in some way can relate to that being tossed and turned. Lord, we know your servant Paul himself, as the word tells us. We know the struggles he went through all the way to the end of his physical life. God, I pray that we would be people that would inspire peace. Lord, we know there's so many empty words being said by so many people. Your words are living. Your word is alive. And Lord, you live within us. You direct us. You guide us. You comfort us. You've been promised to us. And Lord, how great, how awesome you are. I just pray, Lord, that we would truly show this world that peace is possible. Lord, help us. Draw us close to you. Help us feel your loving arms when we hurt. Comfort us when we feel tossed and turned. Be our strength. Be our light. Be our path. When we don't know what to do, when we don't know where to turn, when we feel lost. God, we know that in this world, we're going to continue to struggle. But we know that the world is in your hands. God, I thank you. I thank you for your word. I thank you that if we know you, we can know peace. Lord, help us. Help us to, to grab a hold of this and to not let it end with us. Help us carry it into a world that needs peace, that needs you, that needs salvation. Lord, as someone has said, make us instruments of peace. It is in the name of the Prince of Peace. In the name of Jesus, I pray these things. Amen. There's supposed to be peace within us. Peace that comes, comes from heaven, comes down to earth, comes out through us to the world around us. And God's promised us this. And then the body moving together with different parts. We can be instruments, individually and collectively, to this war-torn and ravaged world. You know, if you haven't yet made a decision to be an instrument of peace, be a new creation in Christ. We extend this invitation to you. If you haven't yet made that decision to go down into these waters, waters of baptism, come up a new creation in Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, we invite you to do that today. Or if you have another 
public decision you'd like to make today. We invite you as we stand and sing this song about unity, this song about peace. Bind us together. Not be broken. Would you sing?